0: Interview number 103 David Ambrose and the International Storytelling Festival of Wales Thank you my dear brother what a beautiful soul All children love stories Folk tales They are messages from our ancestors
1: Then you have come to the right place We will have a storyteller in every
0: school Storytelling can teach You have that openness of a child Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell
1: stories. Know yourself. Follow
0: your passion. And
2: live with grace.
0: Hi, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf, and I am so thrilled that you have made the time to come and join us here. Mm,
1: Tonight, I have a special gift for you. I have an amazing... Why, I have found... I have found, oh, a bright light of Wales. I have found a man who stands for an ideal of what storytelling can be, who supports a tradition of what storytelling is. And that's David Ambrose. In a moment, I'm going to talk about him. But before I do, I want to suggest to you that this show, what we're doing here, is the most important thing you could be doing. That maybe you don't need to be writing that paper or or maybe you don't need to be reading that book. That maybe you could just set aside what you're doing and pay attention to the words that David offers us because it's precious and it's important. It's storytelling. And I know you agree with that because otherwise you wouldn't be here listening to these words. So thank you so much for joining our show, The Art of Storytelling with Children. Now, David Ambrose... Is the founder and the director of the Beyond the Border Storytelling Festival in Wales. I met David here in Washington D.C., where we are right now, at the 2009 Smithsonian Folk Festival. And I know normally on this show I don't mention the time and the date. It was such a great opportunity for me, uh, being a presenter at the Giving Voices Storytelling Festival, and seeing all these amazing African American storytellers from around the United States. And then, as a, just as a, like icing on the cake, to actually get to meet David Ambrose and get to see him tell stories, because I love, as, as many of listeners know, I love the art of the fairy tale, and I love the remaking and the, and the reliving of the old fairy tales. And so listening to his work was just, it really inspired me to go home and to, and to go back to the work that I've been doing of, of, of working on these fairy tales and bringing them to life. And then, to find out that he's director of this festival that I've been hearing rumors about for years, and people talk about and rave about as this amazing place where traditional telling meets new telling, and, and new telling respects the old, it's just amazing. So, um, thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm I'm
2: delighted. In fact, I'm delighted to be here in Washington generally. The the thing for me has been a gift and an honor to have been invited to represent Wales and our culture right here in America's front yard. So, yeah, we're all delighted to have been here, all us Welsh storytellers.
1: How long have you been telling stories for? Um,
2: On and off for about 15 years, but... um, some of that time it was more off than on because I was very busy doing other things I was running a centre for the arts I founded and directed a storytelling festival as you've mentioned the Beyond the Border Festival and those two things were very demanding and I was finding not sufficient time to take the business of becoming a storyteller of learning about the storytelling craft seriously enough and uh, things came to a head about uh, five years ago and I realised something had to go and I didn't want it to be the storytelling. So I quit my job as director of the Centre for the Arts. I hung on to my job as director of the festival but that's very much a a part-time job, it's a freelance job and I devoted the amounts of spare time that I suddenly had to storytelling and that's exactly what I needed to do in order to try my best to become a better storyteller.
1: Now, for all your inspiring artists out there, I just want to notice that David described how he spent many years building up to that point. He didn't just quit the job and become a storyteller. He spent many years building up his talent before he did that. I'm always wary of, of inspiring artists getting started a little too soon, so so build up your talent first. Do you have a story you can share with us? I do, and, but before I do that, can I add something to
2: what you just said? Because I think you're absolutely right. I think that is, it's crucial. Um, today on the mall, somebody came up to me, young girl, obviously passionate about storytelling, really, really interested in the performance that I've been giving, and she wanted some advice about How to become a storyteller. How did I become a storyteller, she said. Well, I found myself saying that there were probably three things that you need to do. One is you just need to listen to as many storytellers as you can. And that's where I've been really lucky, because having begun the storytelling festival, I then had this procession of some of the finest storytellers in the world coming past Uh, through South Wales every year and so uh, I was able to see a lot of different styles and then I think the second thing is um, you want to find stories and for us these days it's unlikely that we grow up in a living tradition sitting at the foot of master storytellers from the day that we're born hearing stories again and again every night that is unlikely and so most of us have to go to books and I think the second part of the advice is just go and find as many stories as you can and then the third thing is tell stories just keep telling stories find opportunities try to find an opportunity every day to tell a story um, I have been telling one or two stories today already but I'm very very happy always to be asked to tell a story so now this is my chance to put into practice what I just said. I'll tell you a story. There was a man on the mountainside, a shepherd, and at the end of the day, his, sh- his dog ran into a cave. The shepherd followed, and in that cave, he found a nest, a bee's nest, full of wild honey. He drew on his gloves, He plunged his hand into the nest and he took out that sweet golden honey. The nest was full of honey and he plucked the honey and he put it into his leather bag until his bag was bulging with honey. He put his bag over his shoulder and he and his dog began to walk back down the mountainside. They followed the stream until they came to the town. Before he crossed the bridge over the river to get to his village, the man went to a cafe in that town. There were some men sitting outside the cafe, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. He let his dog stay there on the doorstep, and he stepped into the cafe. He went to the cafe owner. He showed him the honey. When the cafe owner saw that honey, he knew... It was well worth buying. He could see it was finest wild honey. A couple of drops of that honey in people's tea or coffee, it would make that coffee sweet. He could sell that coffee or tea for a good price. He could put that honey into halva and make very sweet halva with that honey. So a transaction was made. The shepherd was going to sell the honey to the cafe owner. The cafe owner fetched a large pot of and a metal ladle and he began to scoop the honey out of the shepherd's bag into his pot and as he scooped neither of the men saw this but a drop of honey formed on the bottom of the label neither of the men saw this but that drop of honey began to fall from the ladle to the floor if either of those men had known what would happen When that honey hit the floor, they would have done anything they could to stop it, but neither of them noticed. The drop of honey fell to the floor. Up on the ceiling of the cafe, there were flies circling lazily. When they saw the honey, they swooped down and settled on the honey and began to eat it. The flies on the honey caught the attention of two swallows who were roosting in the rafters, in the beams up on the ceiling of the café. The swallows swooped down to take the flies, but hardly had they landed when the cat, the café owner's cat, who'd been sleeping up until then on the counter, saw the birds, woke up, leapt from the counter, and put out his paw and killed one of the birds. Well, this caught the attention of the shepherd's dog who up until then had been sleeping on the step in the doorway. The dog ran in, grabbed the cat by the neck, shook the cat, and killed it. The cafe owner was furious. He turned to the shepherd. He said, Look what your dog has done. How am I going to keep down the rats and the mice in my cafe now? Look what your dog has done. And he took that metal ladle, and he swiped at the dog, hit the dog on the head, and killed the dog. "'The shepherd was mad. "'Look what you have done to my dog,' he said. "'That dog is my faithful companion. "'How am I going to work up there on the mountainside, "'looking after my sheep without my dog?' "'The shepherd drew back his fist "'and punched the jaw of the cafe owner, "'who fell back, struck his head against the marble counter, "'and fell dead. "'The men who'd been sitting outside the cafe came inside.' One of them grabbed the shepherd's arms and held his arms behind his back. Another took a knife and cut his throat. They took the shepherd's body down to the river. They threw it in the river. The next day, the shepherd's body was found by the people from his village on the other side of the river. That night, young men crossed the bridge, came into town, sought out the shepherd's killers and made orphans of their children, and widows of their wives. When the people of the town discovered what had happened, they armed themselves, they carried flaming torches, they crossed that bridge, and they set fire to the village. They killed those who they could catch, and those who they couldn't catch fled from the village into the hills. But it so happened that that river was not just dividing a town and a village, it was also the boundary between two kingdoms. When the king, in whose land the village was, heard what the townspeople had done, he sent an army across that bridge, and he devastated the town. When the king in whose land the town was, heard what had happened to his town, he sent armies across every bridge he could find into the neighboring kingdom, and there was war. Cities were destroyed, people were made homeless, many thousands were killed, the land went to rack and ruin, there was famine, there was disease. Thirty years later, people were still living as refugees in tented villages. A grandmother was sitting outside her tent. Her granddaughter was at her feet. The grandmother had been talking about the old days. The granddaughter said to the grandmother, Grandmother, if things were so good back then in the old days, why did it all go wrong? What happened? How did this terrible war begin? The grandmother said, It all began with a drop of honey.
1: That's amazing. And the really, really cool thing about that story is that Margaret MacDonald tells a famous version from Thailand of the drop of honey.
2: It's a universal story, and it's a true story. I traveled to um, Israel not so long ago for a storytelling festival for peace. I traveled with um, a wonderful, wonderful Welsh storyteller and dear friend called Megan Lloyd, and uh, just before we set off, there was the, the most recent war in Lebanon. And uh, you may remember that it was triggered by the kidnapping by Hezbollah of two Israeli soldiers. And when the war was pretty much over, the leader of Hezbollah said that if he had known what was going to happen as a result of capturing those two soldiers, he would never have done it. It's the same
0: story.
1: These issues of of traditional coming into... You know, you have a story that's traditional, and then you're telling it. And at what point, with some of these stories, do they... need to stay where they are, and at what point do they need to come into the modern times?
2: It's a really good question. It's a really interesting thing that I think the role of the storyteller, at least as far as traditional stories is concerned, is to make them relevant to contemporary audiences. But in doing that, I also think you have to respect the tradition, as you said at the top of the program. Um, That's what we've tried to do with the Beyond the Border Festival. And part of that uh, includes keeping the stories not allowing the stories to get too close to the contemporary world because I think if they get too if the landscape of the story if the world of the story is too familiar it becomes mundane and I think one of the uh, great strengths of the traditional story is that it can evoke a magical world in which there is hope, possibility, there is the potential for change and transformation. And these things are, I think, more readily evoked if the story is not set absolutely in the here and now. There's another thing as well, and I think that is if the story is too realistic in terms of the modern world, you can also, the storyteller, can also make inaccuracies and then be picked up by, the, by an audience. Whereas if you set the story in an unspecified past, you're unlikely to trigger uh, a response that undermines people's belief in the story. And things that Coleridge said about the best poetry is also true of stories. You've got to encourage the suspension of disbelief in your listeners
1: does that answer the question let's talk about the beyond border storytelling festival
2: the beyond the border storytelling festival is unique in britain in that it is the only truly international storytelling festival in britain and enough people have told us how wonderful it is for us to feel confident that we can say it's the best storytelling festival in britain it's one of the largest it's got something going for it that is unique amongst storytelling festivals probably in Europe, and that is the setting. Everybody who comes to the festival says immediately that the site is one of the stars we invite really fine storytellers, but we have to admit that the setting, the location, is also um, a a famous guest, if you like and... um, the, the setting is this there 's a castle it 's a medieval castle beautiful medieval castle in wales it 's set on a cliff top. There are terraced gardens sloping down to the sea there's a large jousting field at the bottom of the gardens. There is woodland all around uh, people who come to the festival camp out um in a large field above the uh, on on the cliff top so there 's cliff top camping We can have um Uh, fires there and storytelling around the campfire. People then walk from the campsite down through a wood beside the sea and then they reach these beautiful gardens. In every garden we place a tent and in every tent a storyteller. We run seven or eight venues more or less simultaneously. We put on something like 75 or 80 performances in the course of a weekend and They are mainly storytelling performances, but not exclusively. And this was one of the things we set out to do right from the beginning was to provide a balance between storytelling and music. We recognize that a relentless diet over a whole weekend, a relentless diet of storytelling, isn't a balanced meal. It's very good to give people an opportunity to digest a story perhaps whilst listening to something else also we recognize that if you've got a family group it might be that not everybody in that family is as interested in and passionate about storytelling as we are and um, we didn't want to be divisive so we set out to offer something to a family and if one member of that family didn't necessarily have the same appetite for storytelling they could at least find other things to entertain them so there's music it's principally traditional music, so it fits with the general atmosphere of the festival, but it's traditional music very often from around the world. Um, we have lots of things for children, including games. Um, there is puppetry, uh, which is very often for adults as much as for children. We have a wonderful range of craft stalls, food stalls, um, we show movies, we have um, a bar that... Sells the widest range of real ale from Wales that you could ever hope to imagine. And so we we feel that we have come up with something that makes a fabulous weekend for individuals passionate about storytelling, but also for families just simply perhaps curious about storytelling and who will find lots of other things to enjoy during the weekend as well. What time of the year is it? Um, It's a summer festival. It's the first weekend in July. It's every two years. So the next festival will be first weekend of July in 2010, in 2010. And um, we have a website. It's www.beyondtheborder.com. And um, we update that as often as we can. Like so many other storytelling festivals and organizations, We're a very small organization. We're not highly funded, um, but we do what we can when we can. Um, I say this because probably if you go to the website, um, you might find it isn't absolutely up to date, but we always try to get the information up there as soon as we can, once we have a good idea of what our forthcoming program is. We tend to program um, thematically, so we look at... uh, It might be a geographical location, it might be a a cultural theme. Um, Very often it's geographical. And we're just about to embark on a theme of looking at um, the culture of traditional stories along the Silk Road. And we're going to run that over three or maybe even four festivals. So the first festival is going to start by having a look at traditions in Italy. We're going to follow in the footsteps of Marco Polo. So we're going to have stories, storytellers, and music and puppetry from Italy, from Turkey, from Armenia and Georgia. And then in subsequent years, we'll move on through Iraq and Iran, through the the various uh, Central Asian republics, and we'll end up eventually in China.
1: Are you aware that Smithsonian did this a few years ago?
2: Yes, sure. But that didn't happen in Wales. <laughs> this is Bobby Norfolk, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf.
1: So I'm assuming that you spend, in order to set these up, that you spend a lot of time trying to reach theatre or how would you contact, how would you even find a traditional storyteller in some of these countries?
2: Well, I didn't know the answer to that either when I began. But I co-founded the festival with a storyteller who's got much more experience than I have. And actually, he performed in the Smithsonian Festival with Yo-Yo Ma a few years ago. His name is Ben Haggerty, master storyteller. And he has an encyclopedic knowledge of storytellers and storytelling traditions around the world um, so he taught me a tremendous amount and gave, introduced me to people and having set that ball rolling um, over a good many years um, Ben has stepped aside uh, to do pursue other things and leaving me in sole artistic directorship of the festival and so I had that Early grounding, if you like, to start off with, and now well i 've just built up my own contacts and networks, and now I like to feel I know where to go
1: these days. so how many people attend the festival, how many there are paying? how much is a festival uh, let 's start with that We get about uh, two and
2: a half thousand paying people coming to the festival, the festival weekend. But actually, if I talk about the festival, in my mind, at the forefront of my mind, is that weekend. That's really the hub of the festival. But that hub also has spokes, and we reach out into the community with a whole program of things that take place around the time of the festival, but also throughout the two years in between festivals. Um, At the time of the festival, we probably... Bring storytelling to um, another 5,000 people at least, as a result of creating opportunities for those who can't or are you know are unable to come to the festival, who uh, for whatever reasons. Um, So, for instance, we take advantage of the fact we've got storytellers coming into the festival for the festival weekend to place them in schools in libraries, in hospitals, in prisons, in old people centres, and so on. And that's a programme that runs right across South Wales. And as I say, that attracts another five, maybe six thousand people. Um, so the festival reaches, is it, it touches maybe seven and a half thousand people around the time of that weekend. In addition to that, we run projects in schools, again principally in South Wales education projects and they're of two kinds, they're either just simply taking storytelling into schools, encouraging uh, people to um, improve their speaking and their listening skills Um, maybe there's an element of uh, creative writing involved as well, telling socially conscious stories we're also involved in encouraging the next generation of storytellers and this is very important work. We haven't done so much of this ourselves yet, but we are just about to do, to launch um, a Young Storyteller of the Year competition. There is one in England, and we're just about to launch the Welsh equivalent. But for the last few years we've been doing projects involving the development of storytelling skills amongst young people. and um, So that's another very important element of our work. And also we regularly promote storytelling in other centres. Uh, for example, in the centre of Cardiff, which is the capital city of Wales, there's a large um, arts centre, an opera house, and once a month on the main stage in the foyer area of that uh, wonderful building, you'll find some of the finest storytellers uh, from around the UK performing under the Beyond the Border banner. So we're involved in a whole range of things, really, all the way throughout the year, and um, I don't know, I've lost track of the number of people who we touch through that rolling program, but it's a lot.
1: Where does your funding come from, percentage-wise, without the the actual numbers? So are you 50% funded by grants or 20% by grants? Is most of your funding, percentage-wise, from people um, paying for the service in terms of the festival, or is a fair amount donations... Percentage-wise, just break it down for us.
2: Well, the, the festival weekend uh, generates... Uh, our earned income is about a third of the festival uh, festival's turnover. So, yeah, then we have to raise the other two-thirds from a wide variety of sources. And um, most of that is public money, a certain amount of private money. The public money... Um, maybe from the UK but also a significant proportion usually comes from the countries whose storytellers we are featuring. So we, for uh, example, uh, in the uh, last storytelling festival we uh, had a major feature on storytelling traditions from across Canada and the Canadian government liked this idea very much so they gave us a very nice grant that helped to pay the travel costs at least of all those Canadian storytellers if it hadn't been for that we, we couldn't have featured them so um, it's in that way that we, we go forward and raise that other two thirds that is not our own earned income um, as far as the other side of our work is concerned all the things that happen outside of the festival time they are much more dependent on, on grants um, and that might be from a local education authority it might be from um, Uh, A private trust who's interested in work with young people. Um, We like to have the idea first and then try and find the money.
1: Does your experience as an art center director give you the contacts to get those sort of grants?
2: Yes sure it is. I've been involved in that side of things for a long time so I guess it does.
1: Yes. In your role in Beyond Borders you've had the ability to see lots of different traditions of storytelling. Could you describe for us how these different traditions express the art of storytelling and perhaps generally maybe go through maybe a 10-minute survey of the world of traditional storytelling as you experience it? Because many people have the strange idea that storytelling has completely died out. I think um, storytelling
2: very nearly died out in Northern Europe and maybe uh, by and large here in America as well. It certainly has not died out in um, African culture, um, not in the Caribbean, not in India, and, and it's alive, but perhaps in a slightly diminished form in many, many other countries around the world. Hey, this just depends what we mean by storytelling as well. And there really are... It's a large... Spectrum. Um, so we tend to feature as many points along that spectrum as we can in our festival, with at one end what some people have called the fireside tradition, and uh, that's the tradition that pretty much. Um, just about kept alive, uh, stayed alive in Britain, um, certainly in Ireland, for instance, where you'd have somebody who is not a professional storyteller, but is known as a good yarn spinner who might tell a story at the back of a pub, round the fire in the family home, um, might gather a few friends together and contribute to a night of stories, tall stories, stories, funny stories, maybe just simply jokes. And those are all valid forms and kinds of storytelling. At the other end of the spectrum is the performance storyteller, um, the professional storyteller, if you like. And I think that is the tradition that really had died out in Northern Europe, but which was once very strong, particularly... I have to say, particularly strong in Wales, where there's been a long tradition of bardic storytelling. The storyteller who is employed by the uh, head of a noble family, uh, possibly even um, in the courts of of kings and and, uh, the nobility, to tell stories that will reflect well on the patron. Um, This is also still more or less alive in Africa, and um, it's changed somewhat. But the role of the griot was just that, to, to the storyteller who tells the genealogy of the king or the patron. And it's not really a, a history that can be trusted because it's um, based on flattery. But um, it's an art that is um, very, very skilled. You need great training, and it's a professional's job to do that. Um, in many cases, these uh, bardic storytellers would accompany themselves on a musical instrument. And that was certainly the case in Wales, where they would typically accompany themselves on the harp. Um, in Africa, famously in West Africa, uh, the kora, the harp, lute is the instrument of choice uh, and and of um, and of tradition of the the griot. We, I think, have experienced in Northern Europe this. Revival that seemed to spring up right across Europe at roughly the same time by which I mean the 70s and 80s and there was a sudden rediscovery of these lost traditions but very often in an urban context so we're not talking about the old storyteller sitting in a pub um, in a tiny little village out on the west coast of Wales but more um, younger urbanized storytellers rediscovering these uh, larger wonder tales and turning those into performances and that has led to a realization that this is a storytelling these are storytelling traditions that have their counterparts all over the world. So I think initially uh, the storytelling revival in Britain was um, limited to a a re-exploration of of our own culture and very rapidly uh, became influenced um, by cultures where storytelling has not died out. So influenced by African storytelling, influenced by Indian storytelling. And of course, in our multicultural uh, Western European societies we have access to um, representatives of those cultures and some of the uh, leading storytellers in Britain today uh, come from the Afro-Caribbean community um, because I think they are more directly in touch with a vibrant living tradition of storytelling um, and uh, other storytellers are having to remake their traditions. The uh, French storyteller Muriel Bloch said an interesting thing quite a few years ago now, but she pointed out that we're all orphans to tradition, uh, certainly in in the West. And so we're having to remake things as we go, and there have been some real pioneers in that field, and thank goodness for them when I think of what they did Uh, back then in the late 70s, early 80s it's quite extraordinary because they they didn't have the benefits that I've had of um, mentors and signposts and so on they were just feeling their way towards what is now I think a really major revival of storytelling which hopefully means that it won't ever um, get to the stage where it almost dies out as it it did um, towards the end of the last millennium
1: one of the topics that's important in the United States is there's a real issue with Native American communities of cultural sensitivity and cultural appropriation. And I know Great Britain is another country that has a history of empire, and the United States is currently active in several wars in, in which, actually, in some cases, Great Britain is also involved with in some minor in some minor way. I'm just curious what what your experience is around working with traditional storytellers around the world in terms of cultural appropriation issues
2: well you're absolutely right it is, it is a sensitive issue and there are there are differences of opinion about that I think it, it is absolutely um, incumbent on the sons and daughters of the uh, former empires to recognize how the people who they who their countries colonized are going to feel. And there is a debt there that hasn't been paid off yet. And um, it's been one of the fascinating, one of the many fascinating things about being here at the uh, Smithsonian Folk Life Festival, has been um, meeting with the participants in the Giving Voice Festival which is a festival of um, uh, African-American poets and storytellers celebration of the spoken word in uh, African-American culture and the the sensitivity there is, is plain to see we've been appropriating things from black culture for a long time maybe that culture is not ready yet for us to um, appropriate their stories those stories could be said to have been the um, the flame uh, the flame of hope for those cultures during their darkest days and they're not ready to surrender them yet and why should they I know that uh, many native North Americans feel exactly the same um, they've had their land taken away they've had so many of their customs taken away please please they have said to me representatives have said to me storyteller Gail Ross has told me in no uncertain terms leave our stories alone and I understand that and at the same time I actually think that the stories have survived due to a continual process of assimilation perhaps rather than appropriation but if you hear a good story You want to retell it. And if you have the opportunity, you can retell it enough times until it becomes your story. I don't believe that that necessarily takes it away from the person that you first heard it from. I think what you do is you try to make it your story. An example of that, um, a very good example, is the um, now... uh, now departed storyteller Duncan Williamson, great storyteller from the British Isles, a traveller, born in a tent um, 80 years ago, died the year before last, but a man who had a
0: huge
2: volume of stories in his head, about 3,000 different stories, ranging from little one-liners and jokes up to much longer stories, and who had absolutely perfected the skill of hearing a story, remembering it, and being able to retell it uh, very rapidly, and and did so all his life. His power to do that was was undiminished to the end. When he first came to America, uh, when he was first invited to American storytelling festivals, when he was already in his 50s, he heard a whole bunch of stories over here that were nothing to do with his culture, his uh, Scottish traveller culture, Uh, But he liked the stories. When he came back to the British Isles, he was telling these Native American stories. But they were set in the world that he knew. They were set in Scotland. And you would have sworn that they were traditional Scottish stories if you hadn't known where he got them from. And that seems to me, actually, to be a really valid and, in a way, nurturing part of of the storytelling process so there is there is a tension there on the one hand I want to respect the wishes of those who feel that their stories are their stories and on the other hand I want to see stories shared as widely as possible um, I haven't got any other answer to your question than that
1: that's actually a, um, in some ways a very original answer I've asked a lot of different storytellers and festival organizers that question I would be remiss if I also bring up this is a. I watched some of your tellings, and I also, in this story, sometimes it seemed to me that a lot of the stories that I saw that were from Wales had a great deal of death in them. People's heads getting cut off, throats cut, blood going everywhere. And not just you, it wasn't just you, you know. And I saw um, Daniel, too, you know, he had him. I was like, whoa. And. I like to think that my fairy tales are pretty raw, but they don't go anywhere close to that. You know, when you were performing this morning, there were small children in the audience, and you're like, and there were 100 heads around her castle. (laughs) And to an American audience, it's like, whoa, you know, the eyes kind of go a little wide, and I think the heart beats a little faster, and it's it's good in some ways, because it makes us sit up and think. But I'm wondering if... In telling the American audience these Welsh old stories, if you really had to sort of think through, you know, is this really what I'm going to do, or is it just so clear to you this is a part of the culture that you're going to keep it no matter what?
2: To a certain extent, you try to gear at least the delivery of your story to the audience, and... If you don't know what that audience is going to be like until you step out on stage, um, then you're probably finding yourself in a position where you've decided on the story you're going to tell and then you just have to try to make adjustments. I could have told that story this morning in a different way. um, There could have been a lot more blood than there was. Um, But I didn't want to change the facts and the structure of the story. Um, I just chose to tell it in a style that I hoped would work, given that there were some pretty young kids in the audience. I think there are worse things to put in front of children than death. I think you have to try to establish a relationship with your audience so that they know... That they're in safe hands. They know the smallest child knows, as well as the oldest adult. It will work out okay in the end for the principal characters. Everybody else is expendable. And you don't want to spend too long on the gory details. You don't want to make that child identify too much with the people who are going to die. They need to identify with the hero who's at the center of this story, who is facing those dangers. The child needs to feel that they too can face dangers, and they can be a hero, and they will survive in the end. And in a way, in a sense, they too can live happily ever after. The journey is the important thing, not the incidents in it. The journey that the child takes has got to be in the hands of a good guide. The storyteller's role is to be the safe, reliable guide who gets them through the journey.
1: By taking death out, are we making the story much less interesting and much less potentially exciting? Not just less
2: interesting and less exciting, I think less effective. These stories are about something. They are very often about, simply, I mean, if I was to summarize it, they're about a lot more than this, but to summarize it, they're about life. They're not about death. They're about life, but we all know that life is finite. We all know that life will involve decisions, choices, moral choices, and it will occasionally involve meeting dangerous situations, learning to recognize what is dangerous and what is not, meeting danger and overcoming it. That's life. And these are life lessons, but I want them actually, in the end, to be life-affirming. But I think if you take death out of them, they don't work in that way.
1: It's so interesting to me because there are certain... Conversations I get into on the show, and I talk to certain um, tellers, and I don't want to say anyone's name or out anyone, um, but I find it so fascinating how there are among us as tellers. It's just so important that we look at these these deeper issues. We we look at examine what we're seeking to accomplish, and and sometimes it feels to me like. You know, there are stages of development we go through. The first stage of development as a storyteller is you start copying the people you admire. Mm -hmm. The second stage of development is you become obsessed with stage time. (laughs) And then the third stage of development, you realize there's an audience. And then somewhere along that, that, that journey, you realize that the story comes from somewhere. And then all of a sudden, you start to see the story is going somewhere And then you start seeing that this is more than just about you and about performing. This is about something bigger. This is about culture and life and choice and how we live, you know.
2: But I think it is always about the storyteller. You're saying something, even if you don't perfectly understand it, you are saying something about yourself, the the stories you choose to tell. You're always exploring something about yourself. The moment you stand up on stage, the moment you stand in front of an audience without even opening your mouth, actually, your body is saying, is speaking volumes to the audience. And so you are expressing something about yourself. And so to go back to what you said originally, it could be I'm just suggesting, this is just, I'm thinking aloud. It could be that the Welsh are saying something about their culture when they have these stories that are about death
1: and so on. But I do. You did spend, you know, a thousand, two thousand years defending yourself from the rest of Great Britain and getting your butt kicked in the process. It,
2: it is absolutely true, and if you look through our uh, great mythological cycle, the Mabinogion, um, there are extraordinarily bloody acts uh, within that uh, set of stories.
1: But the last question I really wanted to ask you was about that topic and the question of landscapes, and, but we're running out of time, so in a paragraph, <laughs> could you describe how well storytelling is connected to landscapes?
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. It, it's profoundly connected, and you experience that as you drive through Wales. Every single place in Wales is named after a geographical, topographical feature, and so there is a long tradition of linking landscape and language in in Wales. Um, we have this in common with many other cultures, too, but we have a we're particularly rich, I think, in legends about place, stories that account for um, geographical and topographical features, why that mountain has a little bite out of it, why that stream flows down this side of the valley, why there are ridges on the side of the hill. These are um, stories that explain the landscape and I think anybody who lives in Wales feels something about the land of Wales and the songs, the poetry the stories, the music of Wales very often refers to the landscape. People have been endlessly inspired by the land. And, uh, yeah, that runs very deep in the Welsh psyche.
0: Hi, this is Mary Hamilton. I'm a co-founder of WOW, working on our work Storytelling Weekends, and you are listening to me on the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Do
1: you have an offer for the audience?
2: Well, my offer is... um, Come to Wales, look me up, and I will be delighted to point you in the direction of some of the places where these stories actually took place. And um, if you can come in the first weekend of July, uh, every other year, um, starting next year, 2010, then you can come to the finest feast of storytelling set in a beautiful castle overlooking the sea that you could ever hope to find.
1: So say again your website and the Beyond Borders website.
2: Yeah, it's www.beyondtheborder.com, and the full title is the Beyond the Border Wales International Storytelling Festival, and it takes place at St. Donat's Castle in the Vale of Glamorgan in South Wales, beginning of July.
0: I have a couple different offers for the audience. The first offer is that I have a free e-course on podcasting. So if you run a festival or if you're a storyteller who wants to use the podcasting medium, if you're just someone who's interested in developing a podcast, this free e-course can save you a couple hundred hours of time, and that might be a good thing. So go to artofstorytellingshow.com podcast and sign up today. I also have a free e-course on blogging. And if you want to learn how to use passion-centered blogging to push your agenda and your art form out in the world, you can go to artofstorytellingshow.com passion. In addition, I have started the International Storytelling School. So if you're a storyteller listening to this show and you are interested in getting exposure to some of the best storytellers in the world... I would consider signing up as an apprentice-level member at the Storytelling School. And you can learn more about that at thestorytellingschool.com. So, you any last words of advice
1: for the international storytelling community?
2: I don't think I've got any words of advice for the international storytelling community. Not really. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I'm delighted that there is one, and I'm I'm proud to be part of it. Um, advice? Oh, I don't know. Any
1: last words of wisdom for the...
2: No, I think I've run out of words of wisdom for tonight.
1: Well, I want to really appreciate you and thank you. It's been two weeks here, and we're both exhausted. I'm falling asleep, and he's falling asleep, and we're going to go downstairs and perform a minute. And it was a real pleasure to get to know you and talk with you. I think part of the conversation for me that that I want to bring us back to as we're going out here is that part of being a storyteller is doing it. And it's all around us it's on the TV, it's in the newspapers, it's in the shape of the landscape, it's in the names in the telephone book, it's even in the map you use to drive through the highway. If you look at the different names, you'll see names that represent the different, in in the United States, the different eras of people settling there. I had a friend in Southern California, who showed me where the Russians had landed, he pointed out the Russian names, the towns, and then he showed me where the um, where the Spanish had first come in. He showed me the traditional Spanish names, and he showed me, you know, uh, the different waves of immigrants that came in, the English and the the Germans, and he just went through. It, was, it blew my mind, and how they were all related, and how they settled in different places, and and each of those names, each of those places, has a story behind it, and. That's one of the great gifts I've learned here watching the Welsh tell stories, is that every landscape has a story behind it. Even if the original people there have moved on, there was a story at one time there. And, that, and, that, and to me, that means there's an opportunity there for another one. Um, David, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, real pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com/alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved.
2: Was a man, a shepherd, and he was up on the hillside, up on the mountainside, with his dog. And at the end of the day, that
1: drink a little tea. I can just hear the crack in your mouth. it's been like that all day. Okay.
2: (laughs) After um, ten days of storytelling
1: on the mall what do you expect I was going to take that out but I'm going to leave it in now for all the good listeners